Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Who has seen The Imitation Game? It's a film, and The Imitation Game, uh, a great film. It's a thinking film. It has a little bit of a sad ending uh, without any spoiler alerts. But uh, basically, the film is based on a true story. And it's around some incredible minds that got together in World War II to help decipher and break the code of the enemy messages that were being sent. And I think it's just a great betrayal of our life as Christians and how we face life and how we do life. You see, Nazi Germany were the enemy to Britain at that time and they wanted to invade. And so there was a very real enemy that they were facing. And that very real enemy had a very real plan and that was to conquer Britain at that time. And in order to do that, they had strategies. And those strategies were put out there by messages uh, that were always encrypted and coded. And uh, in order to get the advantage over the enemy, they had these men that would get together, these great minds to be able to decipher and break the code so that they would know the strategy the enemy because they knew if they knew the strategy of the enemy, they would be able to intercept and overcome and defeat the enemy. That's the whole premise of the film. And I thought, wow, how true is that for our life as believers? You see, whether you know this or not, we have an enemy. We have an enemy. And that's what this new series is all about, which Phil kicked off just last week called The Devil Made Me Do It, question mark. The devil made me do it. You see, we need to know that we have an enemy. For those of you who have become a Christian more recently, you need to know all the promises and all the blessings that you probably heard that were indicative and key to making a decision to follow Christ are all true. You will be blessed and you will be prosperous and you will be the head and not the tail. I believe that to be true. But what you need to know is there's equal truths that you entered a battle zone, you entered a war zone because we have an enemy who has a plan who has a strategy. We have an enemy. The enemy, as we learnt last week, is Lucifer, a fallen angel. He was one of the big three in heaven. There were three archangels, Gabriel, Michael and Lucifer. And Lucifer had the incredible role of leading God's people, the angels of heaven, in worship. And as he did that, day after day, Week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia, something entered his heart. A little thing called pride. You see, pride is what made the devil the devil. You're never being more like the devil than when you are operating in pride. And pride is what made the devil the devil. And he's worshipping one day thinking, hey, you know what? Um, I'm just as good as God. And he wanted to be not in the presence of God. He wanted to be God. And rebellion against God came as a result. And God being God had the authority to cast him out of heaven. Unfortunately, this demonic influence affected and influenced one third of the angels. And so Lucifer, the archangel, along with one third of the angels, heaven's angels were cast out of heaven. Those angels have become known to us as demons. So the devil and the demons were actually angelic beings that used to live in the presence of God and worship Him. But pride entered their heart and rebellion was the result. And as a result, God had to punish the rebellion and cast them out 
of heaven. The devil is very real. We have an enemy. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, our struggle, who here has ever faced a struggle? You know, even as Christians, we face a struggle. What I love about the Word of God is that it doesn't deny some of the hardships and struggles that we will face. It says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So when we point a finger at our wife, our husband, our children, our work colleagues, our bosses, our friends, our family members, we've got to understand that's not where it's at. Our struggle is not actually against flesh and blood, but we do have a struggle. The Bible is very clear that there is a struggle and it tells us where that struggle is at. It says our struggle is against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. You see, when the devil was cast out of heaven, along with one third of the angels, it was like an army was formed. And if you see any army or military force, they have a hierarchy. And the demonic influence and the demonic forces have a spiritual hierarchy of which the devil leads this demonic army. And there are principalities and there's powers and there's strategies and there's plans attached to this army. And the plan is to simply take you out. We not only have an enemy, but we have an enemy who has a plan and that plan is to kill, steal and destroy. He wants to destroy every marriage in this place. He wants to destroy every family in this place. He wants to destroy every business in this place. He wants to destroy all the financial uh, makings in this place. He wants to kill, steal and destroy. You better believe that we have an enemy and what he wants to do to you and your family is not good, it is not healthy and it doesn't make for happy believers. We've got to understand that. Let us wake up, church. I believe that this series is about us being prepared, not scared in our understanding that we have an enemy. Are you with me today? You see, one of the greatest strategies of the enemy is to convince the world that he doesn't even exist. If you don't believe we have an enemy, then you're not going to fight him. And he has a free reign and free rule into our lives and causes carnage. Likewise, we're not going to be like a lot of other people who just blame the devil for everything. It's funny in life, there's always these two extremes. There's those that don't believe in the devil, they have their head in the sand. And then there's others who live with here a devil, there a devil, everywhere a devil, devil. And we're not meant to live there either. You know, it reminds me of the devil one day was sitting outside a church. The pastor came and said, hey, what's the matter, mate? He says, the trouble is with your church, they blame me for everything. See what I did there? Did a bit of a dad joke, which fell as flat. Anyway. <laughs> but we're not here to blame the devil because the devil didn't make you do it. But we do have an enemy that has plans to destroy you. And those plans come with strategies. Everyone say strategies. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. In other words, you and I today often are not facing the devil face to face. We're not facing the devil head on. We're actually dealing with his schemes. It's interesting to note that there are no more demons and devils today, but the population has increased exponentially since the time of Jesus. And so in order to cater for all the extra people on the planet, he's had to put in extra schemes in order to take us out. And he uses some of those schemes to great precision and great effectiveness. And that's what this series is about, us being aware that there's an enemy, understanding his plan and understanding his strategies. Last week, we looked at the fact that uh, Satan is the deceiver who attacks our mind. 
Next week, we're going to look at Satan being the destroyer who attacks your will with pride. And today, I want to share the thought that Satan is the accuser that attacks our heart with accusations. And so if you would, turn with me to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, so you can find it real easy. So turn in your Bibles or your devices or follow on the screen, if you will. And in Revelation chapter 12, we're going to look at two verses today, just two verses, chapters 12, verse 10 and 11. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, You have come, so I now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much to shrink back from death. Two incredibly important verses and I want to make three points that hopefully will help you understand that we have an enemy, that he has a plan, that he has schemes and strategies, but that we have one and a strategy and a plan that can help us to overcome. And so the first one is simply this. The Bible says that we have an accuser. Number one is the accuser. We have an accuser. And it's this accuser that accuses the brothers and the sisters. You see, when you come to Christ, we come into the family of God. God is our heavenly Father. And as we all share the same heavenly Father, that makes us brothers and sisters. And when we come into the family of God, we have one who wants to accuse you as part of the family of God. Of God. The term accuser translates adversary, which translates nemesis or enemy. We have an adversary, we have a nemesis. Just like Superman had Lex Luthor, we have the enemy that wants to take us out and take us down. And he will do it through his accusations, through the things he says against us. And it goes on to say that he accuses the brothers and sisters both day and night. In other words, this enemy of ours is relentless with his accusation. We sing a song about the relentless love of God. You know, his love is relentless. We sing that, but I want you to know the devil is also relentless. He's relentless. He will attack you both day and night, which also says that he's not only relentless, but he's also an opportunist. See, he'll wait to when you're at your weakest, when you're at your tiredest, when you're at your most vulnerable. That's when he wants to attack. It's interesting to note that in Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus was sent by the Holy Spirit to the desert to be tempted and tested and to pass those temptings and testings that came his way. But during the 40 days, the devil showed up and he kind of brought test after test and, and Jesus was able to withstand all the tests that came his way. Thank God for Jesus. And then right at the end, it says this incredible verse. It says in Luke 4 verse 13, when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. In other words, he'd finished for that day. He realised he wasn't getting anywhere, so he left until an opportune time. When are those opportune times? They're the times when we're most vulnerable. We see the first time the enemy shows up in the life of Jesus is through King Herod. King Herod heard that this Messiah had been born, that this new king had been born in Bethlehem. And because they weren't sure of the exact time, King Herod, out of pride and jealousy, operating out of the same spirit that the devil made the devil the devil, said, let's put to death all the children two years and under. Let's wipe this king out when he's still a baby, when he's most vulnerable, when he can't defend himself. 
Thank God an angelic voice came to Mary and Joseph and they were able to take baby Jesus out of, uh, out of Israel and into Egypt for a season and then bring him back after the passing of King Herod. But that's the strategy of the enemy, to take you out when you are tired, to take you out when you are weak, to take you out when you are vulnerable, to take you out when you are small. When someone comes to Christ, you need to know that they are a babe, a brand new Christian. And that's the time the enemy wants to attack. And we as a church need to rally around those that have come to Christ. And we need to make sure that they get a good foundation and a good solid foundation in order to withstand the attack that comes their way while they're still in their infancy. Because that's how the enemy works. He shows up when Jesus is in the desert, when he's tired and he's hungry. I don't know about you, but after not eating for 40 hours, let alone 40 days, I get hungry. Jesus has not been eating for 40 days and the first temptation that comes his way is a matter of food. The devil tries to tempt him by breaking his fast by eating. That's what he does when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're vulnerable. Have you ever been um, so hungry that you're angry? Hence we get the phrase hangry. You ever been hangry? Just be careful. So you need to know yourself because the devil knows you. You need to know when you are strong and you need to know when you're weak. You need to know when you're stable and when you're vulnerable. Because when you're vulnerable, that's when the enemy is more likely to attack. I imagine our young People, when they come back off the winter project, the devil will probably leave them alone for a while because they're just on fire. They're just too strong. And that's why we put on these moments of saturation to get your children strong, to get our youth strong, to get our young adults strong, so that when the temptation comes, which it will, they'll be able to stand in that moment. But more than likely, the temptation won't come off the back of Winter Project because they're just too strong. He'll wait till they're a little bit tired, a little bit weaker. It's just how He works. And so you need to know when you're vulnerable. You need to know when you're at your weakest. You need to watch where you go when you're emotionally low. See, if you're emotionally low and you know it, and you know where you normally go when you're emotionally low, you can actually put some boundaries in place. See, for the guys here, it could be like when I'm emotionally low, I get on the internet and I start looking at something that I shouldn't look at, which leads to something else I shouldn't look at, and pretty soon I'm hooked. If, if you know that you're emotionally low, don't go to the internet. Ladies, if you, if you know you're emotionally low, don't go to the fridge and start eating all that chocolate. Watch where you go when you're emotionally low. Because let's be honest, ladies, you was only going to have one row. I know, you was only going to have one row of chocolate. I know, it's just, I'll just break one, I'll just, I'll just break one. And you wrap it up and you put it down and you even try to reseal it. I don't know about you, I've not found one resealable packet that can't be opened again real easy. Anyway, and you put it in there, you, just, you, 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 you walk up, I'm just going to have one row. And you have one row. But it just went so quick, didn't it? It just went so quick. And, and so pretty soon you're back at the fridge and you just open it and you're staring at it. Watch where you go when you're emotional. And the next thing you know, you're putting the empty packet in the bin. I mean, it's just happened. The devil made me do it. Did he? Or did we succumb to a scheme? Did the devil make us do it or did we succumb to a scheme? Watch where you go when you're emotionally low. We have one who wants to accuse you and he doesn't fight fair. He attacks when we're vulnerable. He attacks us when our destiny is at stake. 
And like I said, sometimes we're not dealing with the devil head on. We're dealing with his strategies and his schemes. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking about his future, how he must go to the cross and he must die for the sake of humanity. And Peter, who's feeling pretty good about himself at that moment, says, Jesus, you're not going to die. How dare you say that? Take that off the table. And Jesus recognises the source because He was talking about His future. And it's amazing how well-meaning Christians hinder the plans and the purposes of God's people. It never ceases to amaze me. One of the strategies and schemes the enemy uses is well-intentioned Christians. And Peter was well-intentioned, I'm sure. But he said, you're not going to do that, Jesus. And Jesus, recognising the source, says, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. That's pretty harsh. That is not how you win friends and influence people. But Jesus knew with the source and he addresses it. He says, no, no, you're trying to mess with my destiny. You're trying to mess with my future. Get behind me, Satan. And he'll use well-intentioned Christians, well-meaning Christians. As long as it stops you. The devil doesn't mind us having church. He doesn't mind us getting together Sunday. He doesn't mind this. What he hates is us leaving this place and fulfilling our destiny. That's what he hates. And so if he can lull us into a sleep and, and, and we can just have nice songs that don't actually impact anyone else, he's happy with that. He doesn't mind us having church. He doesn't mind us playing church. What he doesn't want us to do is have a future. He has plans to kill you to steal and destroy. And sometimes he does that by just rocking us to sleep in church. We go to church every week. He said, that's great. Just don't do anything. I'm happy for you to go to church every week. Just don't do anything. It's one of the strategies. And you actually think you're doing a great thing. This is awesome. You think you're doing a great thing. You're doing nothing. This is awesome. That's strategy 101 of the enemy to get you think you're being more effective than you actually are, to get me thinking I'm being more effective than I actually am. These are the strategies and the schemes of the enemy. And if he can get us arguing over the songs, the song selection, and whether this is correct or or this is not correct, he loves that. And if he can get some people arguing over whose chair that is, who sits there, I normally, he loves that. And we fall for it. We fall for it. But start talking about your future. I'm going to draw a line in the sand. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to make a difference. And Peter speaks up and Jesus recognises the source. He goes on to say that this enemy has been hurled down. And this is an important fact to note that the enemy is a defeated foe. He is defeated, but he still accuses. I think this causes some confusion for some people. They say, well, if he's defeated, how can he still be doing this? I'll tell you why. Because he's defeated, but he still accuses. You say, well, how is that possible? Just think about this for a moment. Your beloved football team, soccer team, netball, whatever it is, whatever sport you follow, the team that you love. Have you ever found yourself when your team has lost, been defeated, been hurled down by the enemy? You find yourself accusing the opposition of cheating? Have you ever done that? You're defeated, but it doesn't shut you up. In actual fact, it's because we're defeated, we start lashing out. You cheated and the referee, he's blind and and we do all that. And at that moment, we are being just like the devil. I remember in the grand final last year, our beloved Adelaide Football Club, 
I say our because we are an Adelaide Football Club church. We just are. If you want to go to heaven, you better believe that anyway. And we played that other team, that black and yellow team, that team I can't even mention by name. Richmond, you know, like we played Richmond. And, and, and after the first quarter, we were up. But after that, we kind of just, we lost. And we had been hurled down, defeated. And it's amazing that stuff that came out of the Crows supporters' mouths. We blamed the opposition. We blamed the umpiring. We blamed the captain. We blamed the coach. We blamed all kinds of things. It didn't stop us accusing. We were defeated, but it didn't shut us up. The devil's like that. We're defeated. He's defeated, but he's not going to shut up. He's not going to go quietly. You need to know this. This is not to scare you. This is to prepare you. The devil is not going to shut up. But we can silence him. He's defeated. He lost 2,000 years ago. It's not fair. Like what? It's God That's Greek. <laughs> it's been said the devil knows you by name, but calls you by your sins. He doesn't use your name. He knows your name, he doesn't use your name. He calls you by your sins. Hey, you who didn't read your Bible today. Hey, you who shout at your wife. That's what he does. But here's the good thing. God knows our sins, but he calls us by name. So when we sin, he says, hey, Tony, get your head up. Calls us by name, even though he knows our sins. The devil knows our name, but he calls us by our sins. Why? Because... We have an accuser, and that's what accusers do. Secondly, and the good news is, not only do we have an accuser, we have an advocate. It says they overcame, they overcame, they overcame, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. You see, Jesus' victory on the cross means two things for us. It means that we have power not to sin, that we can overcome temptation when it comes our way. We can say no to ungodliness. We have the one in us that is greater than he that is in the world. And when we are tempted and when we are tested, we can say no. Because the grace of God enables us to say no. The grace of God is not just about warm fuzzies. The grace of God is a power that enters our body and forces us and empowers us to say no to doing things that we know are not right. Thank God for Jesus. But also, not only does it mean we have the power to overcome sin, but it also means we have forgiveness if we succumb to sin. I love this. I love this. I love this. When faced with temptation, we have the ability to say no because the greater is He that is in me than He that is in the world. But if for whatever reason we succumb to the enemy's strategies and plans and find ourselves doing the wrong thing, we can go to Jesus for forgiveness because He's our advocate that pleads our case before God the Father in heaven. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2, to it says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. See, 
God's heart is that you wouldn't sin. Why? Because whenever you sin in your marriage, it hurts your marriage. Whenever you sin in your family, it hurts your family. Whenever you sin in church, it hurts the church. God, God loves the church. He loves your family. He loves you. So he wants us ultimately not to sin. He wants us to do what is right so that we don't hurt that which we love. This is not religion, list of rules and regulations, what you must do or must not do. This comes from a heart of love that wants you to succeed in life. So I, I write this, John says, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who's that? It's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, Jesus is in heaven right now pleading our case. And the only imperfection that has ever been allowed in heaven are the nail-pierced hands and the nail-pierced feet of Jesus as an eternal reminder of what he did on our behalf. And so when we sin, when we overcome temptation and don't sin, God's saying, well done, good faithful servant. But when we succumb to sin, we have one who's able to intercede on our behalf and plead our case. The devil just sows more and more accusation. But Jesus is able to show the Father, say, Father, remember what took place 2,000 years ago. And his sins can be forgiven as a result. Some of you know this story, but there's many people who are new to this church who don't. But when this church turned 16, it was actually on the 16th birthday to the day that we celebrated Victory Church being 16 years old. And uh, it was in this building. And I'll never forget it because I shared this message that I called, God I love, it's just people I can't stand. And when I shared that title, there was a giggle. Uh, there was a resonating within the people that I, I, I hear you. I hear you. I mean, man, what's not to love about God? He's awesome, but people, man. And because of how people responded, I found myself going, actually, you know, church, you know what I really wanted to call it? And they're like, yeah, yeah, tell me. The devil made me do it, I'm telling you. <laughs> and I, I said, this is what I wanted to call it. God I love, but people give me the... And I said this word I shouldn't have said. And the place erupted, it's funny, laughing, joking, resonating. I've got total connection. And I thought, oh, wow, in for a penny, in for a pound. Hey, church, you want to know what I was really going to call it? I was just warming up. This is what I was really going to call it. And then I just let loose and kind of gave the title of what I was going to call this message, of which everyone was laughing and joking, which was kind of a reflection on the church we've built over 16 years, which was kind of bizarre. But anyway, long story short, no sooner had those words come out of my mouth, I knew God was trying to get my attention. I, I sensed a, a, a heavenly conviction. 
And because I was preaching, I just kept myself busy. I'm just preaching. I'm, just, I'm, ducking, I'm ducking and weaving God, you know, as I'm preaching. I'm preaching, preaching. And uh, got home that day. And I, I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't want to sit and be still because if I sat and was still, God would try and get my... So I just kept busy. And I made all these phone calls that day. I made all these, you know, pastoral calls. Hey, Jane, how you doing? Just went, Why are you ringing me? I, yeah, I, just, I love you, man. I just want to know how you're doing. All I was doing is keeping myself busy. And then I was busy enough till that Sunday night and, and I'm preaching Sunday night and, and I get through that night and it was great. And I get home and I'm, hey, have people over. Let's have people over. And that, that, till the last person wants to go, do you want, sure you want to go? No, stay, stay. Hey, hey, better have a sleepover. No, don't go. <laughs> Long story short, everyone leaves. Time to go to bed and I'm lying there and I just know what's coming because God loves me. And he wants to talk about some stuff that I did that day. And I felt God say, now, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but I know the voice of God. And I felt God say to me that day, is there anything you want to talk to me about? Anything. Anything at all. Maybe starting with this morning, anything. <laughs> no, I'm good. Until the moment came, I just burst into tears and I just, I just know, I just blown it. Conviction was so strong. God was on my case that much. I just knew I'd blown it. That's God loving me. But no sooner had I responded in that way, the accuser got in. And so I went from, I'm so sorry, God, I've blown it to hearing the devil's voice. That's right, you're useless. Call yourself a Christian. How can you lead the church? And honestly, by morning, I'm convinced I've got to write a resignation letter. I can't keep doing this. And the phrase that came to mind was, I've got too much blood on my hands, which is kind of how David felt in the Old Testament, based upon all the battles he'd been through. And I felt like, man, 16 years of building this church, I haven't done it without getting blood on my hands. I'm just, I'm just guilty of having too much blood on my hands. And I felt the devil was like, yeah, that's right. But no sooner had I felt that, I felt the advocate step in. I felt Jesus just stepped in and pleaded my case. And, and I felt these words come to life. Tony, that's true. You got a lot of blood on your hands. But how about we do a divine exchange? How about there be a transaction take place? My blood for your blood. And I just, I just remember at that moment, a peace coming, a gratitude into my heart. And I remember the accusation stopped immediately. And I went from about to write a resignation letter to being in the place where I just couldn't wait for church to come around. I couldn't wait to meet with the church on Sunday morning and, and apologise to the church for my language, apologise for my church for being out of line, and, and, and I also wanted to take something off the church. I wanted the church to know it's nothing to do with you. You didn't make me do it. You haven't driven me to this. My wife has not driven me to this. My children have not driven me to this. I did this all on my own. I, I'm that good at being that bad. I did this all by myself. And then that moment got turned into a communion moment, which is probably one of the most significant, beautiful, powerful communion moments that we've ever had as a church. And there was weeping, and, and I felt like I wasn't just confessing my sins, but I was giving people license to confess their sins. And the reason I was able to do that is because I knew like I knew like I knew 
that there is an advocate, that there was one in heaven pleading my case. And I felt at that moment, Jesus said to the Father, you hurt his heart, he's sorry. And that's why I went to the cross. I, I went to the cross to be able to forgive people in these moments. And I believe the advocate is in heaven today pleading your case for you. Which brings me to my third point as the band come. And that is the acknowledgement. It says that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. But the blood of the lamb is not enough. I know that sounds hered- heretical, but it's not enough. What Jesus did for you is not enough. He says they overcame him with the word of their testimony. See, it's what you say about what Jesus did that brings the power in your life. We need to have a power of confession. In Acts chapter 4, verse 20, it says, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. We can't help it. We we weren't told to. We didn't go to a class. We weren't made to. We just can't help but speak about the things that we've seen and heard. Can't help it. This comes out of our mouth. How did they overcome? Because they have an advocate and they had an acknowledgement. They had a testimony. What is your testimony? Your testimony is fourfold. It is what God has done for you. You've got to tell people and you've got to tell yourself, you've got to tell the enemy what God has done for you. Your life is different because of Christ. It's different. It's also what Christ is doing in you. Hey, if you think I'm, if you think I'm uh, selfish now, man, you should have seen me 10 years ago. I'm a work in progress. I may not be where I want to be, but God, I am not where I was. God's doing an incredible work in me. He's doing an incredible work around us. You know, we've got a church full of people that have testimony after testimony, share on behalf of others. They said, man, in our church, you should have heard what happened here and what happened there. Oh my gosh, spill the beans about what's happening at the train station or what's happening in Kalawasi. Great things are happening. God is doing some incredible things around about us. Don't be silent, church. Our testimony is also what Christ is doing through you. Be it in schools, university, be it at the workplace. I I shared at our all-in meeting what happened to Kath and I just last week as we were making our way to Canberra. We were in the Qantas lounge and Kath was making some phone calls, last minute phone calls before we go away for the weekend to make sure everything ran smoothly as we do. And, and this woman, it was, it was bizarre because she wasn't next to Kath. She was quite a distance away and there was many people in between her and Kath. And she made her way up out of the seat through the people to tell Kath just that she's being a bit loud. If she could be a bit quieter, that'd be much appreciated. Of which I think she did a brilliant job at what she did. I was just a little bit bemused as to why she did it. I just think, man, you're miles away. Why even bother? It seemed strange to me. Didn't think any more of it. She left. We got up to catch our plane. We were a little bit later. And so as we're looking for our plane, I'm looking for the empty seats. I know it's kind of around that area. And then I see two empty seats. Everywhere else is packed. There's two empty seats. And then I notice next to those two empty seats is a woman in the seat. Guess who that woman was? The woman that walked over to my wife and told her to be quiet. I mean... Of the, what are the chances? What are the chances? And so we, we make our way in. So excuse me, excuse me, just take a seat. And I think I've, I've, got, a, I've, got, a, I've got a second to make a decision. Either I say nothing and it just gets awkward for two hours. Or I say something in the next second just to break the ice. 
And I do what I do pretty well, actually, and that is just address the elephant in the room. And so I just looked over this woman and said, hey, can I just say thank you? You've been able to silence my wife, something I've been able to do for 26 years of marriage. <laughs> Brave man clapping back there. Just saying, hey, yeah, man! You're in trouble when you get home, I know that for sure, but anyway. <laughs> Ice was broken, but, but I can't help but think the whole thing's a setup. Because for the next two hours, Kath and this woman spoke, and what did Kath do? She shared a testimony. She talked about, we lead a church. And that led to questions about what do you, does that mean and what does that do and what does that look like? And we started talking about the internship program and how we desire to help young people. And we started talking about what we're doing in Kalawasi and helping people. And amazing testimony for two hours took place. How do we overcome? We overcome through the word of the Lamb, blood of the Lamb. But we have to add our confession. We have to add our acknowledgement of what he did. We can't afford to be silent because the devil's not silent. He's just accusing left, right, and center, and we silence him. It was amazing. That woman wasn't telling Kath to be quiet anymore. In actual fact, I kind of left them to it. I managed to nod off for a little bit, and I woke up and said, gee, can you two keep it down? You're very loud. <laughs> it's just an incredible moment. They overcame through the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. And then he goes on to say, they did not love their own lives so much as to shrink back from death. The message translation puts it this way. They weren't in love with themselves that they were willing not to die for Christ. What that means is there was a conviction to their confession. See, the confession we have has to be birthed out of conviction. The confession must be birthed out of personal conviction. If you don't have personal conviction, you won't have power. When I was a teenager attending church, I never forget our pastor said this. He said, God only has sons and daughters. He doesn't have grandchildren. You, you can't have a relationship with God vicariously through someone else. It has to be your personal relationship. It has to be your personal Bible reading. It has to be your personal confession. It has to be something you do and do meaningfully and regularly. This is what I've learned. If it's not first-hand revelation and it's only second-hand revelation, you'll get beaten up every time. In the book of Acts chapter 19, there's this story of a man that had seven sons. He was a priest. His name was Sceva. So he was a priest. He was like a pastor and he had seven sons. They were pastor's kids, PKs. And these seven PKs, these pastor's kids, looked at what Paul was doing and they saw that Paul had an authority to cast out demons. I thought, that's cool. What a great party trick. And so they thought, we're going to try it. And they saw a man who was demonically oppressed. And, and so they went up to this one guy on one occasion and they said this. They said, in Jesus' name, whom Paul preaches, come out of this man. The demonised man looked at him and said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who the heck are you? And then it says that one man gave the seven men such a beating that they left bloodied and naked. Like, what? 
Did I miss something? I mean, like, okay, it's a fight. I, I've seen a few fights, but I've never seen them. I've, I've never seen them leave naked. What sicko beats someone up, then takes his clothes off, and then sends them on their way? I mean, what, who does that? Weird. But it's indicative of the nature of the devil, who does want to humiliate you. He doesn't want to just beat you. He wants to humiliate you. He not only wants to beat you, but he wants to humiliate you. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't have personal revelation, you'll get beaten and humiliated every single time. On my worst day, I stand before God. I've got no one to blame. I chose this life for me. I chose it. I chose it. I, 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 I went in, eyes wide open. On my darkest day, my, my saddest day, my toughest day, I don't blame anyone. I chose this. I chose this out of a personal relationship. I said, I'm going to serve you, Lord. I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know what it looks like, but I'm going to do this. Personal conviction. And so when it's a bad day, I don't blame anyone because I, I, I walked into this out of my own personal conviction. If you're blaming people, it's probably that you don't have personal conviction. And that's the problem. You need personal conviction because personal conviction brings the power. Here's the good news. If you find yourself in that place, there's some things you can do. First thing you've got to do is just repent. And repentance is just that 180 degree turnaround. Whatever you are doing, whatever you are looking at, whatever conversations you're in, just do the opposite. If you're looking at that site that you shouldn't be looking at, just, just don't look at that site. Just go the other way. But don't spin so quick that you just keep going. You've got you to stop, address yourself, arrest yourself and, and, and go in the opposite direction. It's tough, but you can do it. Secondly, we've got to confess. You've got to confess your sins. When we confess our sins to God, that brings forgiveness. But when we confess our sins to one another, James chapter 5, it brings healing. One brings forgiveness, the other brings healing. So I say, Lord, forgive me for losing my temper. I'm so sorry. He says, you're forgiven. But now I have to find who was affected because I lost my temper and apologise to them because that moment I have with God doesn't affect my relationship. And so I say, Lord, forgive me for losing my temper. Forgive me for using language in the pulpit that I shouldn't have. I'm so sorry. We forgive me. I feel like resigning and yet I feel like you're loving me enough to go on. Thank you. That's awesome. But I still had a whole church I needed to apologise to. And I've got to be honest with you, I couldn't wait to do that. There's times, hey, forgive me for losing my temper. Forgiveness. But Kath, hey, I'm sorry I lost my temper the other day, babe. Healing. This is not rocket science. It's beautifully and powerfully simple. Jesus went to hell and back to make it this simple for us. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.